together, we we looked at the story from Genesis 19 about God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That story we see in Genesis 19 is really a memorial to God's work. And in fact, the whole region there around the Dead Sea is a memorial to God's work. It shows his handiwork, and you'll see the. You say, "Well, where's the Dead Sea?" If you're geographically challenged, if you go to Israel, the country of Israel, you'll see uh, on the east side of Israel there, the uh, Sea of Galilee. Probably familiar with that. That's up toward the northern part, and then you got the Jordan River coming down to the Sea of. Uh, sorry, the what's called the Dead Sea. And that whole region around there has drastically changed since the time when Lot. And Abraham lived there because you remember Lot moved into Sodom and, and he was looking over the well-watered plain of Jordan there. That's why he moved there. He, he loved what he had seen. But of course God destroyed the five cities there of the plain. And so the destruction of Sodom and her sister cities stand as a testimony to God's own character and, and even of what does he think about sin itself. And you'll see, by the way, there's various ideas of where was Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, I've, I've, some people think it was on the east. Some people think it was on the western side of the sea, the Dead Sea. It doesn't really matter. But uh, it is interesting. If you look at these uh, aerial photographs here, you'll see a lot of sulfur deposits right along the western side of the Dead Sea and. Notice it looks like places that used to be cities, and there's five of them. I don't know if that's coincidence or not. I don't know, but uh, anyway, just uh, it's very interesting. You'll see all these. It's kind of brown in other places, but then you got these isolated pockets of sulfur, like like God burned something there, <laughs> possibly. I don't know, but um, that's what you see from up high. And uh, there is, if you zoom in on the next slide here, there's there's people who've tried to go find like where was Sodom and Gomorrah and these other cities, and you'll find these sort of places. That's what it looks like when you actually get up close. Like uh, there could have been something there from a city at one point. But but the point in showing you some of these photos is, is as we see in Genesis 19, that this was such a significant event, at least in God's eyes that God mentions it some, like, almost 20 times throughout Scripture, and he's doing this over and over again to warn people of the consequences of sin. In fact, would you believe Jesus is the one who probably mentions Sodom and warns us and uses it as an illustration in his own teaching more than anyone else? So let's look at uh, what does the Bible have to say about Sodom and these other cities. We're going to see some lessons from Sodom. What can we learn as we study through the Bible? Well, uh, the first one we see is we need to beware of bad morals. <laughs> beware of bad morals. Well, that's one thing we see in the book of Jude, your second to last book in your Bible. Now, there are no chapters. There's only one. So look at verse 7. Jude, verse 7, mentions... Sodom, it says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example 
by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Hopefully you're already familiar with the story from Genesis 19. We've already studied that last uh, time we looked at it. But there's a warning here for us, particularly a warning in regard to the sin of homosexuality. Uh, sexual immorality particularly speaks here of, of the immorality with the opposite sex. Female with female, male with male. So wherever you find homosexuality, you're going to find an abundance of this kind of immorality. And you say, well, why is that? Well, look at the text, because the text emphasizes the abundant aspect there by saying that the people of Sodom were guilty of indulging themselves in this particular sin. At least my Bible says indulging. In other words, they pursued their sin with abandon. They they went after it with, with passion and zeal. So my friends, our country is really not much different, sadly. Few, few people maintain virtue in their lives regarding morals, and so we need to take heed to these kind of warnings, because notice the text tells us it serves as an example. All, all people should be heeding this warning, because this text promises a great text, or sorry, a great judgment on the land as a result you need to understand, God is patient, God is long-suffering, but at some point His patience will end. It is not forever. Look at the next phrase, by the way, in your Bible, because it says that the people of, of Sodom here pursued unnatural desire. And, of course, that signifies that which is opposite to the nature God originally gave us, which is what homosexuality is. A natural desire can by the way, also involves sex with animals. And it's interesting, if you know anything about homosexuality, uh, according to their claims, their statistics, the ones they admit to, uh, the, the stats that I've seen, at least 20%, 20% of homosexuals admit to having sexual contact with animals. So this is something God says it's an unnatural desire. Our culture, by the way, is accepting homosexual behavior more and more. Uh, there's even laws many countries around the world now accepting them and their lifestyle. But Jude tells us here that God's attitude about homosexuality is definitely not acceptance. God didn't create them this way. They're not born with this desire. If you look at the end of verse 7 there, it, it, it says that Sodom here is serving as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So in Sodom here, the sinners, what, what's happening? They're hit with this fire to end the ver their very lives on planet Earth. Their future, by the way, the Bible says, will also involve fire, but this time it won't be temporary. It will be an eternal fire, because look what God says in the last book in the Bible, Revelation 21, verse 8, mentions, doesn't say homosexuality or homosexuals, but notice what it does say, because God says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So let all those who practice and accept 
homosexual behavior, take heed to God's warning here. See, there's only two options. There's only two options. Either God expects you to repent by changing your mind in regard to your sin, or this is what will happen. You're going to suffer the eternal consequences in the lake of fire. So that's one passage we see in regard to Sodom. What other lessons can we learn about Sodom? Well, this one might might surprise you. God warns us about evil nations. Beware of evil nations. And particularly, he says, uh, the, the point I want to make here is beware of being like these evil nations. And so when nations became hardened in the rebellion against God, he actually warned them of the devastating consequences. And how did God do that? He, he did that by reminding them of what actually happened in Genesis 19. What happened to the city of Sodom and the other ones? And there's five nations in the Bible that are given this solemn warning in Scripture. And the first one might surprise some of you, because the first one is Israel. Israel is the first one mentioned here. By the way, if you're curious what the other ones are, it's Babylon, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. All mentioned in the Bible. But let's look at the first one. So we see um, in Deuteronomy, you can turn there, the fifth book in your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 29. We're going to turn to a lot of scriptures today. So Deuteronomy is the fifth book in your Bible. And we see uh, that Israel was judged by God because he considered them to be an evil nation. So look at Deuteronomy 29. And as we look at this, just take note of the context is This is before Israel entered into the promised land of Canaan. And so they're warned by God here that disobedience would bring serious consequences like like what God did to the city of Sodom. So look what God says, Deuteronomy 29, verse 23. If you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen. But uh, verse 23 says, The whole land burned out with brimstone and salt. Nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout. An overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the the Lord overthrew in His anger and wrath. Now sadly, apparently Israel didn't take note of what God had warned them. Uh, Because Israel, of course, entered into the promised land, but they didn't fully obey God. So God gave Israel some consequences for their disobedience. Now, why did God judge Israel? He considered them to be evil. Why is he thinking that way? Well, look at the next verses here. Look at verse 24. Deuteronomy 29, verse 24 says, All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? And then people will say, it is because they have abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury, in great wrath, 
and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. (laughs) So there you go. That's why God did it. God judged Israel. sent them into exile for a while. Of course, they've come back, but that's why God did that. There's consequences to disobedience. They did not keep the covenants. But there's uh, some other nations mentioned here. We also see that Moab and Ammon were judged by God. By the way, those two nations come from the end of chapter 19 in Genesis where uh, the, these, these two nations were actually offspring of the incestuous relations that Lot had with his two daughters. Uh, you remember Lot's wife died and then There was only two daughters that had come out with him, and it's a fitting link, by the way, isn't it? And their end fittingly described by the prophet Zephaniah, by the way, uh, as being like that of Sodom. So the two nations that come from Lot's daughters were were these nations here. So look what the prophet Zephaniah says in chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Therefore... This is God speaking. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, and a waste forever. By the way, did you notice in the aerial photographs around the Dead Sea, it's not a very nice place. (laughs) It's not, there's not much plants there. It's not this wonderful watered plain of Jordan like it was during Lot's and Abraham's day. But both of these nations here rejected the true God, and they gave themselves to idols and and the evil practices of idolatry, horrible things like offering their children and, and putting them in the fires of their false gods. And so like Sodom, they were wiped off the earth. My friends, there's an important warning for us here. For anybody else who will heed it. See, our nation ought to tremble when we read about these judgments. For we're no different in character. And unless God intervenes on our behalf, we too, by the way, are, are asking to be destroyed like Sodom. Our country's asking to be wiped off planet Earth too. Well, there's another lesson we can learn. Number three is that we need to beware of mistreating Christ's ministers. Beware of mistreating Christ's ministers. Now, during Christ's earthly ministry, he referred to Sodom often, and he would do that because he wanted to warn people of the consequences of their evil. Now, several of these warnings, by the way, were given about mistreating his messengers. These warnings, by the way, were spoken in particular when he sent out his 12 disciples into the countryside to preach. And uh, another example, he, he sent out 70 people to preach. Let's, let's look at the first one here in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew 10, this is the example when Jesus sent out the 12 to preach. Matthew chapter 10, verse 14. So we'll read these verses together and then comment on them. 
So Matthew 10, verse 14, says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let's read the other one, and then then I'll make a few comments here. Turn over to Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, this is when Jesus sent out 70 disciples to preach and teach. Luke 10, verse 10. Luke 10, verse 10. It says this, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. You say, well, what is the point? Let's let's make sure we understand the point of Jesus' teaching here. The point is this, that if you reject God's minister when he's preaching God's truth, you're rejecting God himself. Now, notice I said when God's messenger is preaching God's truth. Okay, There are times when we get it wrong. No human being is perfect. We are not infallible. We are not inspired of God, so we can get it wrong. But, but when... When that preacher, when that messenger of God does get it right and is preaching God's truth, it is, it is imperative you do not reject that truth. Because if you do, you're rejecting God himself. Many Christ rejectors uh, can, can appear sometimes uh, in a church as a loyal church member, but sometimes, as I've heard, uh, They can have a continual animosity toward their pastor that actually is betraying their heart. And it betrays their heart as a Christ rejecter because they're rejecting Jesus himself who said he is the way and the truth. So as a result, they're actually inviting God's severe judgment. And that church who does nothing with these Christ rejectors are also asking for trouble, aren't they? So Christ said these despisers will fare worse at the final judgment than the Sodomites did. That's scary. So therefore it would be good for any church to, uh, if if its members recognize this anti-preacher attitude, it would be good, it would be a healthy thing for them to deal with it and not ignore it. There's a fourth lesson to be learned from Sodom, and it's this. Beware of disregarding spiritual opportunities. Beware of disregarding spiritual opportunities. Let's take a look at Jesus' other words from Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, Jesus is teaching here again. And in this, uh, there's this one time here where Christ spoke about a city that disregarded their spiritual opportunity. You say, well, what opportunities... Is Christ talking about? Well, and what particular city are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the city of Capernaum. And if you don't know anything about Christ's earthly ministry, 
you may not understand here that Capernaum was a city where Christ actually lived for a while. And in, in, in the city, the Bible says that Jesus did many mighty works. They were a blessed city to have Jesus and his works. So with that little context in mind, just take note of what Jesus says here in Matthew 11, verse 23. Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Wow. I wouldn't want to live in Capernaum during Jesus' day. That's a great accusation that Jesus is making for Capernaum here. He's telling them that it's going to be worse for them than it was for Sodom. So if Christ had done the works in Sodom, which he had done in Capernaum, then Sodom, Jesus says, would not have been destroyed by fire. They would have believed. They would have repented. They would have escaped God's judgment. And now this is a bold statement, doesn't it? It seems like a very bold statement to make. But we need to remember that Jesus is the one who said it. You say, well, what's the point here? Spiritual opportunity brings great responsibility. So my friend... You're going to be judged according to the spiritual opportunities given to you. In fact, the Bible itself says, To whom much is given, much will be required. To whom much is given, much will be required. That's just another way of saying here, beware of disregarding spiritual opportunity. Now this truth should cause you to seriously evaluate your life. And my point here is, can you and I be guilty of disregarding our spiritual opportunity? Could we be in the same situation as Capernaum? Let's just think a moment. What spiritual opportunities has God given to you? Well, these are the ones I thought of. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is a very long list, nevertheless. Let me just fly through it and and think with me. What spiritual opportunities has God given to you? Here's what I wrote. God's given to us the Holy Bible. He's given us a lot of resources like study Bibles. I'm a fanatic about study Bibles. I think they're a great tool and a great resource. He's given us a healthy church, Bible teachers, Christian friends, lots of great books. We have Bible leadership training. We have DVDs. We have the Internet. We have podcasts, we have Bible studies for ladies, for men, for, you know, you name it. Uh, We have Bible conferences. He's given us, for the moment, uh, somewhat freedom of religion in our country. And for many of us, he's given us a Christian heritage. All of those are wonderful spiritual opportunities for which we can thank God. The question is, are we disregarding them or are we regarding them? Are we using them or... Do we try to ignore them? Now, those are wonderful blessings. So again, I ask, what are you doing with your spiritual opportunities? And my friend, please, 
if you disregard God's blessings, Jesus says you're going to receive God's judgment. A very serious judgment, in fact. And so, uh, as your pastor, I beg you, I urge you, I am pleading with you to passionately use your God-given spiritual opportunities. Use them. Don't ignore them. Don't disregard them. There's a fifth lesson we can learn from the Bible's teaching on Sodom. It's this, beware of end times judgment. Beware of end times judgment. The Bible says that when Christ taught, he warned about the future, about the end times. And he sometimes compared the end times, things that are going to happen in the future, particularly in the tribulation, uh, to, to, to just to remind us of Sodom and what happened there in Sodom and how does that relate to things that are going to happen in the future. He sometimes compared it to the past days in human history to show the character of the people during the time of Sodom there, as well as the very character of God's judgment that fell on Sodom. Now, one of those comparisons here involved Lot and Sodom. I want you to see Jesus' own teaching from Luke chapter 17. Look at Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 28 Jesus says this, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So what were the people like during Lot's day? What what were the people like, the Sodomites like? If If you see what they were like, it's helpful because Jesus is comparing the Sodomites to, to the time during the tribulation. What, what are those people going to be like? And it's a warning. Well, Sodom's concerns here, by the way, are not evil things in and of themselves. Just take note of that. The evil here is that this is all that these people were concerned about. Obviously, when you go home today and you have lunch and you eat something and you drink something... Hopefully you do what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, and you do that to the glory of God. You can't eat and drink to the glory of God. You should. Please do so. But the, the problem with these people is this was their only concern. Their concerns did not include spiritual things. They had no concern whatsoever about God. God was not in their thoughts. So now here in the, now herein lies the problem, my friends. By leaving God out of their life, the Bible says their character became wicked. It became evil. And as a result, their only guide was themselves. So the conditions of Sodom really describe our city today in many ways, if you think about it. Because notice what Jesus says. What were they doing? They were eating, drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. For many people in our city, that is their passion. That's what they're consumed about. That's what they spend their time doing. They're not thinking about God for the most part. We're mostly given up to our physical appetites and materialism. That's the point here. You just think about, for example, the amount of money the beer companies make tells us a lot about their priorities, what is important to them, right? It's a terrible emphasis in our country, really. 
given to this point here that Jesus is making about our drinking. The priority of the physical appetite is seen particularly in any form of sex. We're given over to the passion of sex. We're given to the result of many people's immorality is abortion that kills any unwanted products of their immorality. The great emphasis on materialism is seen here in the buying and the selling and the the planting and the building. And, And sadly, some of that even takes place on Sundays. Sunday's no longer predominantly a day of worship, a day that should be set aside predominantly for God, but the business of of sport even tends to dominate Sundays. Yes, sport is a business, a multi-million, billion-dollar business around the world. And so sadly, Jesus said here that this is a recipe for his judgment. I don't say that lightly. But notice, what does that judgment look like? What, what is God's judgment like? It's similar to Sodom. Now, in this particular text here, in Luke 17, Christ compares Sodom's judgment to the judgment that's going to come on mankind when he returns to the earth. That's the whole context here of Jesus' second coming, which will take place at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Now, what will this judgment be like? Well, to answer that question, it's we just need to know what was Sodom's judgment like. We see, first of all, here in verse 29, that Sodom's judgment was sudden. And so when Christ comes back, his judgment will be also sudden. And so 29 here informs us the judgment came on the same day that Lot was taken out of Sodom. In fact, if you remember from Genesis 19, when did the fire and the sulfur fall? As soon as Sodom got into safety. As soon as he was safe into that, into Zoar. The fire and the sulfur fell on Sodom. And so judgment here was totally unexpected. It came without warning. And this is the way judgment will come when Christ returns. Now, my friend, if you are concerned only for the physical and the material things of your life, you are in danger of judgment. You're in danger of a great, serious, sudden judgment. But notice number two is that Sodom's judgment was severe. How severe? Well, verse 29 says that Sodom was destroyed. Now, you may not get the whole point just looking at the English here, so let me point out something to you. In in Vine's dictionary, it says this about that English word destroyed. It says this, that the idea is not extinction, but ruin. Loss. Not of being, but of well-being. End quote. In other words, here's the point that that Vines is making. The Sodomites didn't cease to exist when God sent the fire down. When God cremated them with the fire, they did not cease to exist. Their body did. But God has created every human being with a soul that lives forever. And so while their bodies were completely destroyed, their souls, of course, were not. And their souls were sent to hell and they are going to eventually be placed into that lake of fire that the Bible talks about in Revelation 21. So their souls, yes, they continue on. So my friends, we need to understand this truth. God's judgment on the ungodly does not include a loss of existence 
people are not annihilated. The Bible does not teach annihilation for sinners. God's judgment, in fact, is far worse than annihilationism. It's far worse. Their soul will live forever. And so we need to take heed to this warning. So judgment was sudden, it was severe. And notice number three, that Sodom's judgment was only limited to the wicked. Only limited to the wicked. What did God do? Abraham had pleaded for his family. God, please save the righteous. And God did. He he had to send a couple angels to drag them out. And so we see that God's judgment here has limits. Its scope will only include the wicked. Who's exempt? The righteous. The righteous are exempt. By the way, that's that's another reason why I am a pre-tribulation rapturist. I believe in a pre-trib rapture. In other words, before that seven-year tribulation, we see this idea over and over again in Scripture where God rescues His people before He sends His judgment. And so Lot's rescue shows the safety The safety one has in Christ. Eternal judgment can't touch a Christian because Romans 8 1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen to that truth. But there's another person. Her name is not mentioned in Scripture in Genesis 19, but we need to mention her. We need to mention her. In Genesis 19, she's just called Lot's wife. Jesus mentions Lot's wife here in in Luke chapter 17. So let's take a look at Lot's wife. and What can we learn from her? Because look what Jesus says in Luke 17, verse 32. Verse 32, just three words in the Greek. A very short verse. Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Why would Jesus say that? Well... Let's just back up a moment. We need to remember what Genesis 19 says, and we can then answer this question here. What what does Jesus want us to remember? He says remember, by the way, in the Greek, that is a present active imperative verb. In other words, it's something that you must continually do your whole life. Keep remembering. Never forget your whole life. So what does Jesus want you to remember? Well, let's back up. Genesis 19, verse 17, here's what it says. As the angels brought Lot and his family out, one angel said this, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. That's it. There you go. That's the end of Lot's wife. (laughs) And we don't really hear about her again. Pretty much until Jesus in Luke 17, 32 says, remember Lot's wife. So what are you supposed to remember? Well, it's it's kind of vague unless you understand the whole context here of this passage in Luke 17. So let's, let's just think about some lessons here. What does Jesus want us to remember? There's four things that I've drawn out of the text, some implications here from the text, I hope you will find helpful. Number one, that Jesus' return will reveal people's hearts and will also reveal what they love. Because that is the point of the text. Jesus is talking about his 
return, his second coming at the end of the tribulation. Because look at verse 30. Jesus says there in uh, Luke 17, verse 30, he says, So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, when he comes back, when he reveals himself there at the end of the tribulation, at the Battle of Armageddon, what are people going to think? What are they going to see? Well, it's going to reveal something about their hearts and what they love. Because starting up in verse, all the way from verse 30 to 36, it's describing what's going to occur when Jesus Christ returns in, in judgment. We, when he comes back, he's going to come back as a conquering king. He's going to defeat his enemies. He's going to establish his kingdom here on the earth. You can read Revelation 19 and chapter 20 for that. The Bible says believers in every age of the church can take warning from these verses, but they certainly apply in a special way to Israel here at the end of the age, because that's what a lot of the tribulation period is, is about. It's a lot for Israel there. And so when Jesus comes for his church, the Bible says he's going to take his church, the believers, the Christians, to heaven, and in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that's going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, as fast as light is reflected off your eyeball. So nobody taking part in the rapture of the church, doesn't. you don't need to worry about what Jesus is talking here. <laughs> because verse 31, when Jesus says, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. See, when the rapture happens, the believers don't need to do that. You don't need to worry about that. Because it's going to happen so fast, even if it crossed your mind, you wouldn't have time to do it. So, don't need to worry about that. However, when Christ returns to the earth, in His second coming... The Bible says in Matthew chapter 24, it's going to be preceded by a sign in heaven. And apparently, when they see that sign, the unbelievers might try to hurry to their house to rescue something. Otherwise, why would Jesus mention this? And and if they do, it's going to reveal something about their hearts. (laughs) They see that sign, they're going to think, oh, Jesus is coming. Ah, I'm going to go into my house and get something. And so the second point we we need to draw out here is this, my friends, that we we need to love Jesus more than the things of this world. What would cause someone to come off the rooftop of their house and go into their house to get something? They must be thinking of something in there that's very precious to them that they don't want to lose. See, Those who love Jesus with all their hearts, There will be some believers at the end of the tribulation. When they see the sign of Jesus coming that that Matthew 24 talks about, they're going to rejoice. Ah, King Jesus is coming. We're going to live. We're going to survive. We're going to go into the millennial kingdom. Jesus is here. They're going to be happy to see him. They're not going to be interested in their possessions. They're not the ones going to run into their house to get their stuff. They're going to run to see King Jesus. Third point we can make is this. The selfish and self-affirming life only brings spiritual death. 
Notice again, in the context of remembering Lot's wife, what does Jesus say in verse 33? Right after he says, remember Lot's wife, he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. He's talking about your eternal life, as opposed to your your spiritual, eternal death. And so we must not be like Lot's wife, who whose heart was so much in Sodom and, and, and her whole life identified with all of her stuff in Sodom that she looked back, despite even what the angels said to her. She still looked back. Now sadly, there's probably a lot of professed Christians today whose plans would be interrupted if Jesus returned. They'd be like, if you knew that Jesus was coming in the next minute, what would you be thinking? Sadly, I think there's some Christians who would be disappointed. They'd be like, oh no, Jesus is messing up my plans. You know, I wanted to do this, and I wanted to go here, and this is still on my bucket list. I, I haven't finished my bucket list, Jesus. Can you just wait a few years in heaven so I can finish the bucket list? Or if Jesus came right now, would you rejoice? tells a lot about your heart. I know that hurts. But we, we need to understand Christ's warning here in Luke 17 also finds parallels in other places of Scripture. Jesus talked about this a lot in places like Matthew 10 and Luke 9 and John 12, just to name a few. So it's obviously a fundamental principle of the Christian life. In other words, you try to put yourself first, you're going to lose. Put God first, put Christ first, you'll gain. The only way to save your life is to lose it for the sake of Christ. Because you can't save it. Don't try. A fourth point that we need to make here is that being close to a Christian will not save you from God's judgment. And by the way, I mean, when I say being close to a Christian, I mean being married to a Christian, even being close proximity to a Christian as far as physically speaking, as far as distance-wise, will not save you from God's judgment. So if you think, well, I was born into a Christian home or my spouse is a believer, therefore I don't need to be, I'm, I'm safe, you're wrong. Because Lot's wife was dragged out of Sodom by an angel, but that closeness didn't save her. The Bible says when she looked back, she was turned into a pillar of salt. My friends, when Jesus returns to judge his enemies, there's going to be a separation of the goats and the sheep. There's going to be a separation of the saved and the lost. The Christian and the unbeliever will be distinguished by Jesus because look what it says here, verse 34. Luke 17, 34 says, I tell you, in the night there will be two in one bed. That's assuming they're married. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, that's the disciples, said to Jesus, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So my friends, do you, do you understand the point? The, the sheep and goat judgment is going to take place here at the end of the tribulation. Jesus knows people's hearts. They, he, he knows, are they really a Christian? Have they put their, the, the faith in, in Christ alone? 
The Christians, by the way, that will be left, then will enter into Christ's kingdom while the unbelievers will be taken away in judgment. Now, I know there's some people who think this is the rapture, but if you look at the, the companion passage and compare that to Matthew 24 to Luke 17, you'll see this is referring to Jesus' second coming, not the rapture. You say, how do we, how do we know that? Well, look at the context. Because the verb taken there, verse 35, doesn't mean taken to heaven. It means they're going to be taken away to judgment. The person left is a believer who is then going to enter into the thousand-year reign of Christ we call the millennium. If you don't believe me, Jesus' whole teaching here has, has backed this up when he says he gives several examples here in the previous context when he says that Noah and his family were left. God didn't take Noah and his family away to judgment, did he? No, they were saved. <laughs> the, only, the only people on planet earth who lived was Noah's family. They were saved by God. They were left. Everybody else was taken away. The the other example that Jesus gives here is is Lot and his daughters. Were they taken away to judgment? No. They survived. They lived. They were left. Who was taken away to judgment? Sodom. The Sodomites were judged. So if you look at the context, Scripture itself will help you to interpret Who's the ones being taken? Who's the ones left? And so, my friends, we need to understand that just because we're close to a Christian doesn't mean you're going to survive God's judgment. So if you're married to one or you you grew up in a Christian home or you somehow your neighbor is a Christian, you're hoping that fire's not going to fall on my house because my Christian lives next to me. That's foolish thinking. It's foolish thinking. You're not going to survive God's judgment. He knows So, my friends, here's the proposition for you. That God wants you to remember Sodom and remember Lot's wife. Because there's some lessons that you need to learn. He wants you to learn these lessons. Beware of the consequences of sin, my friend. They are serious, very serious. You can avoid them. You don't have to suffer for all eternity in the lake of fire. Because Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect life for you and died the perfect sacrifice in your place and all those whose faith is in Christ alone can escape you can escape the eternal fire may God enable us to believe let's pray Heavenly Father we're thankful for your warnings we're thankful for your good teaching that we have seen throughout the Bible on this obviously an event That's a horrible event, but yet a very important one that we need to learn from. So may we remember Sodom. May we remember Lot's wife and the lessons that can be learned uh, from these events. and Take them to heart. Live how you want us to live. May May our lives be pleasing to you. May we warn others of the consequences of sin and how deadly and serious and sudden it is. May we be thankful to you that you've promised to spare all believers from these eternal consequences. So we're thankful that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May may we all know where we stand with you. What what ground are we on? Is it solid or is it is it just a bunch of sandy soil? May our feet be on the rock of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.